I mean, to sushi dolly before Gar Gar Car. I'll eat this night. Yeah. Yeah. All microphones are ready. Okay, this is, yes, this is the right microphone. So, welcome. Um, I'm here today to introduce Ron Silliman. Um, oh, and I'm Ray Armentrout. And I have to remind you first to turn off your cell phones. I haven't even done that myself, but I will when I get back to my purse. Um, we, <laughs> we want to thank the Dean of Arts and Humanities, the Sims family, and the Special Collections for funding this series and this event. Um, and it is my great pleasure, as they say, to have Ron Silliman here today. The words innovative and influential are so often overused that they have lost much of their force, I find, which is too bad because today I really need them. I will say Ron Silliman is a very influential and innovative poet, and I want you to imagine that you are hearing a poet described in those terms for the first time. You probably can't, but try. I know for certain that Ron has influenced my life. I first met him in 1969. If I hadn't, I doubt that I would have had a career as a poet. I would have had the same impulses and abilities that I have now, but I doubt they would have found hospitable ground in which to grow. Ron both encouraged and challenged me then, as he still does. By the time I met him in the very late 60s, he had already, while in his late teens and early 20s, published poems in some of the premier poetry journals, Poetry Magazine and the Chicago Review, for example. This in itself is remarkable for such a young person, but even more remarkable is the fact that he got bored with a success that seemed to come too easily and turned away from that to reinvent himself. When I met him, he was writing very minimalist poems, which became his first book, Crow, published in 1971. Since Crow, Ron has written or edited and published over 30 books, including many books of poetry, a memoir under Al Albany, a collection of critical essays, The New Sentence, and the first anthology of language poetry in the American Tree. In this age of the Internet, he began one of the first and most widely read poetry blogs, and in 2006, he was named Poet Laureate of the Blogosphere. Suleiman's poetry has been not only innovative, but truly groundbreaking since the first publication of Ketchak in 1978. Beginning with that book, Ron has shown himself to be a real new formalist, that is, someone who actually invents new poetic forms. William Carlos Williams said, that there is no poetry of distinction without formal invention, and Ron Silliman has shown us what that might look like. I remember hearing him read Ketchak for the first time in a bar in Oakland, can't remember the name of it, maybe the White Horse or something like that, <laughs> in 1974. It was clear to me then that I was in the presence of something new, something attractive and maybe even a little frightening. Listening to the way the poem repeats and expands at the same time was like watching a complicated flower bloom in slow motion. For those of you who don't know, Ketchak is a prose poem in which the first paragraph is one sentence, the second is two, the third is four, all the way through paragraph 11, which contains 1,024 sentences. I don't think he read it all that night. 
Each subsequent paragraph repeats the sentences in the paragraph before while interspersing new ones. This has the effect of continually recontextualizing, of course, the repeated material. Ketchak was republished along with Sunset Debris and the Chinese Notebook and some shorter works in 2007 by UC Press in a book titled The Age of Huts. This represents Silliman's major work from the 1970s. In the 1980s, he began working on what he thought of as a life's work, the 26 books of the alphabet. Sections of the alphabet, such as Paradise and What, have been published by small presses over the years. The entire project, you know, a substantial volume, was published by the University of Alabama in 2008, a truly major accomplishment. But it turned out, of course, Ron wasn't done, no surprise there. He is now involved in a second life's work, if you will, to be called Universe. No one can say Ron Silliman doesn't think big, but it's actually his eye for detail that I most admire. One of the sentences in Ketchak is, attention is all. Ron pays attention. He notices things no one else has or would. When I'm finding the world dull, which I must admit is pretty often, I ask myself, what would Ron Silliman find of interest in what I'm seeing now? Sometimes I attempt to imitate his notational method only to discover it's not so easy as it might look. A typical Silliman line is able to find the social constructions behind what we take to be natural and unremarkable. His work demonstrates both how things are and how they could be otherwise. His works are affirmative even as they take notice of the damage and dysfunction all around us. I guess I should add in passing that Ron's talent was acknowledged by the Pew Fellowship in 1998 and the NEA in 2003. He has, uh, it looks like the age of huts is for sale here. Uh, so please welcome back to San Diego where he taught in like what, 1981 or something, uh, Ron Silliman. Actually, it was 1982, but uh, where I was hired as a fiction writer because I had published uh, a work called Chanting, which had a justified right-hand margin, uh, and uh, that was the uh, going definition of fiction. There's also in the back of The Age of Huts a work called Sitting Up, Standing, Taking Steps, one of the satellite works of that particular stage of this project of which that is the first volume, Chanting is the next stage. The Alphabet, the, the thousand-page book Ray referred to, is, is the third stage. And Universe, I, I finally am in a position to start to write a long work, uh, will be the next stage. Um, but anyway, uh, Sitting Up, Standing, Taking Steps has no predicates, but it is, it is in prose. And so I want a Pushcart Prize uh, for that as fiction as well. Uh, I have never written fiction, That's it. but uh, anyway, definitely, I'm an award-winning fiction writer nonetheless, uh, and I always point this out to students who are trying to figure out the genres and forms, and, you know, I, before one can begin to think of creating new forms, one does have to come to some understanding of forms, and the first form I ever really understood looked a lot like this. Um, this is actually not a baseball card, but is a trading card of my own. And on the back uh, is uh, what's functionally a sonnet, 14 lines. 
from Revelator. Some of you will recognize uh, the setting, much of which is the um, lobby uh, and the uh, environs of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And everybody in this room, whether you know it or not, has seen the painting called The Persistence of Memory by Salvador Dali because it's the painting of the melting clocks. And I'm going to dedicate this poem to the hum in the electricity. <laughs> Drone to the fan in the bathroom. Refrigerators rumble, casting ice. Fluorescent bulb whines in the lamp. Damp day fogs the glass. Razor wire rings the rooftop. The young woman rises to shake my hand. The helicopter green just hangs high over the gallery floor. The persistence of memory smaller than I'd imagined. The pinks of the women of Avignon too bright. I hear morning as the first siren trucks cough. That idea of things being smaller than one's expectation is something that will come up again when I, I read another section from uh, uh, Revelator. I just realized that. Um, Dwarf Hypothesis is the first uh, book to come out of this new project. Um, and it is part of a section called Northern Soul. Universe is called universe uh, because it's as much a verb as it is a noun. And there will be uh, roughly 360 sections, as there were 26 uh, in the alphabet. And I seem to be working at about the same pace of about one complete section a year. Uh, so it will be a while before I finish it in, in these terms. <clears throat> and uh, you'd be surprised how many people keep saying, oh, you mean short sections, or you, you know. No, I actually don't. Um, I really do mean to try and build a structure that shows what a larger structure could be absent the idea of uh, closure, um, which I always associate with death, oddly enough. Anyway, Worf Hypothesis uh, as I say, is the first part of this longer work called Northern Soul. Any of you who have spent time in England will know that Northern Soul is the British variation of a musical genre that in the U.S. would be known as Motown. Um, but it carries different connotations there. Up Key Street to Dean's Gate then over to Victoria Station, Northern Rail, west to Liverpool. Gray clouds pillowing the sky. No height in these fields yet, whatever they're growing. Hedge row as fencing. An older station at Newton La Willows, brick office padlocked, but the chairs on the platform, bright yellow vinyl. Then the backsides of row housing with thin slivers of yards. School fields without baseball diamonds. Magpies mistaken for mockingbirds. Blood pudding, salad full of rocket. Plane spotter in an anti-aircraft unit learning first to drive a tank across the Egyptian desert, then determining never to leave England again. Sharp shadow over the page, writing into the dark. Notice is hereby given that it is proposed to change the name of Sparrow Park to Gallipoli Garden. Bury and Bloom reads the jeep tipped in aforementioned garden. Fly all the way from London, and what's on the screen? But Cash Cab. 
Squigglies in white paint at each intersection mean don't park here. I'm not listening to their conversation, but rather to the language, which I decide must be Greek, understanding not a word. The tall woman is wearing a giant box, plaintively calling your name. The little dog pirouettes just to see me. The market's a national treasure, but it's just off-brand tack in vast quantity. United puts away the arsenal to reach the finals. Canals everywhere. 10% of the people own 90% of the land. Ergo, 90% of the people live on just 10% of the land. The streets thus are crowded in the south. Locals discern a coarse tongue. Winston Kurnow and Barry Schwabsky in the very same room. Asparagus ravioli, Fleet Street being shorter than I'd imagined, cutting short arty gold, vomiting between sets as the turntablist samples Willie the Shake, photo shoot by the Roman fort, speed at which towns blur by, feeling blurby, Simon McGarfunkel always with the cooked tomato, my kingdom for a floss, Trees shimmer perfectly still, but upside down, mirrored by the river, no more than a stream, peat bog in the pine barrens, dogwoods, blossoms, all but gone. Birds won't fly in a straight line. The tea being hot steamed his glasses, which then cleared slowly. The argument over bitterns turned bitter. Poetry has been very, very good to me, who has proven but a meager steward. In the dark, but with the window open, attempting to sort the symphony of birds. Conch shell mounted atop a copper pipe, copper spike. Where I come from, fog never foretells rain. But here it is difficult to discern where one ends, the other congeals into drops. First crow at dawn maketh one to yawn. The small fort stood nearly 2,000 years until amid the hurly-burly of rapid industrial expansion, it was knocked down without a second thought. Four trill bird song, or perhaps a female green-backed heron. The thrill of the first signature's binding, white thread at the margin, is what I first wrote. Wind on the back of my neck softened the break in the line, not as you hear it, rhetorical, but throated, caught in the business of breathing. A kiss that momentarily proved a bit too intense, takes one's, the choice is in fact accurate, breath away, so that it is oxygen or the absence thereof that flushes the rush of adrenaline illuminating the night. Dickens lives but a block away. That um, set of lines about poetry having been very, very good to me. Um, I later published as a neon sculpture, which um, then was in an art museum up near Manchester for uh, the summer of last year and was acquired by the uh, city of Bury, Lancashire, uh, which they have now... They have now uh, put it into their tram center. So it is, the very, it is the very first thing you see when you get off the train in the center of town. One of the things about publishing in Poetry Magazine, I, it was a work I wrote when I was 21 years old. It was a Robert Kelly imitation. 
and I, it's, it's right, I noticed it just the other day, yesterday, um, in uh, the archives. Um, hadn't looked at it in a while. One of the things that set me up to do, of course, was to become the person who now has the record for um, the longest period between publications. Um, so I published uh, this opening portion of uh, Revelator in June 2010, a, a gap of 41 years. Um, which um, uh, Steve Ratcliffe tells me he thinks he can beat. But um, there was a, a great editor of Poetry Magazine in the 1960s by the name of Henry Rago. And for the first seven years he was editor, he was a very traditional academic poet, um, as Poetry Magazine had always had. Uh, as editor, and then at a certain point, halfway through his tenure, it occurred to him that they were leaving out more poets of interest than they were including by doing that. So suddenly people like Allen Ginsberg and Charles Olson and Larry Eigner and lots of other people started showing up. In fact, Larry Eigner and I, uh, in spite of the fact we have a 20-year difference between us in age, um, we debuted in the same issue, along with... Um, uh, Mitchell Goodman, Denise Levertoff's husband at the time. Um, so that really opened up and changed Poetry Magazine quite dramatically, but Henry Rago went on a sabbatical and they picked a... Actually, he wasn't a new formalist, he was an old formalist, Daryl Hine, to sort of sit in the chair uh, for a year while uh, Henry was gone. But then uh, Henry died of a heart attack while on sabbatical, and Daryl Hine didn't get out of the chair. And um, he did everything. He actually, if my tenure or my gap between those two things would have been considerably uh, longer, except that he held on to that work until he absolutely had, you know, a page he had to put something on. Um, at which point uh, I qualified. Um, but. Uh, Anyway, they were quite happy with uh, Revelator. They even gave me the Levinson Prize um, for the year 2011, which is sort of their uh, prize for best work in the magazine that year. It's a, a curious situation to have won an award that on a list that include Carl Sandburg and Robert Frost and Hart Crane and Jeffrey Hill and a bunch of other like-minded people. Um, so it's an, an odd list to be on. Um, but this is this is a large portion of Revelator, and Revelator is the first part of Universe. Words torn unseen, unseenly seen. Some far suburbs mall lot. Summer's theme. This year's humid. To sweat is to know. Pen squeezed too tight yields ink as blood or pus. So the phrase scraped, removed, offending thine eye. Outsource bush against which insource what. Who will do it? Most terrible predicate high above mountains, snow-capped, even in August, in-flight motion picture, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind infuriates many. No action, no funny plot too dense to follow unless, unless mind's eye gives attention 
First, blackbird signals many, synecdoche, bumblebee wonders, am I his flower? One hour shopping and the vandals fled, him will know not, never confront. So recall the next day that anger directed at complexity as we deplaned in Seattle. Old battle never won, never gonna. Sit now still beside Dungeness River to spot quail, hopping about this untrimmed garden as dog walkers circle back, jet trails and dawn sky, thread cloud wisps, shadows sharp in the mountains. I paused two poems, three pages before book's end. First growl of plains motor, sun higher now, contracts shadow, dandelion, froth blows over cut grass, spotted white tops of clover, something deep purple, bell-shaped, nameless, at least to me, I am what I am, chewing endlessly until I realize I'll never swallow whatever. Jay's bark, first fog, is deepest when trail ends at first bend in the river. This in six weeks will all be swollen, salmon, frantic in their competition, men also. On the wire grid door screen, various bugs alight at dawn, drawn by the interior light. Something long with wings, something no more than a speck with legs. I scream, you scream, we all scream for that which is unnameable, unquenchable, inconsolable, deep in one's chest surrounding the heart. Art is a mode of stalking, balked at any configuration, at what's inescapably omitted. At Monticello, I very nearly wept to imagine just once the president as the smartest, most questioning, most rigorous of all. No, that's not it either, seeing hand-shielding brow, the trail ahead is empty, the man stops to unleash his dogs, mist rises from the river, bland competency distributed equally among hundreds begets only rebellion, what winnowing from the first book to the next, the nest, mountainside, garden, fountain, yellow legs and killdeer, searching the mud for tasties. Who here speaks English? Who here hark loudest grackles, incessant laugh, battle after maths, ironic sum, economy trumps all? History now where teens cluster to mock tourism's earnest gape. It looks so small because it is. Trucks evacuating quarry, beep in reverse, diners posture alert, awaiting omelette, sausages, toast, behind whom the sun arises, white light or morningside heights, cook hollering to the cashier in Spanish, then English, then a third language I don't understand, cringe before that glare until muted by cloud wisps, monastic New York hotel room deep within shadows. What music mocks its maker? The ropes tug as dad shakes his beard. Lost daughter found, then sold into marriage. In walks Bert, again crossing into language. Subway stairs becomes waterfalls under Ivan until flooding halts commute. What Milton sees the deaf hear or not cashews, pretzels, honey, roasted sesame sticks, the earth below flat and checkered, not yet autumn, dry desert heat, heart raises arts phases, hard faces heard in place in pink marble plaza beyond which red dirt surface of Mars is not more barren. Or you are being driven along an unfamiliar route. 
through streets of your own former home, whole neighborhoods tinged with emotion. One still dreams of jets sliding into houses, apartment complexes gone, one millisecond of stillness, then the heat and burst, an orange ball of flame explodes in the mind's eye, anxious in your hotel rooms, great raft of a bed. For days the networks discover new amateur videos, waves far greater than one can imagine. On the beach, bathers not even thinking to run, buses floating through streets of debris. Banda Ache, this week's geography of the public imagination. Fouquet's stream of tourists washed away. Bulldozers scooping corpses. Our newscaster, alone in an empty village, only the battered mosque remains. Where are the people? How does this outer life, apocalypse reported, penetrate my dreams? Three men on the street walking, discussing who will reach 60 when, the way as teens, we spoke of 20. Not even seeing the homeless woman asleep beneath the newspaper racks at Mission and Fourth, Fifth of bourbon warms, warms past between three beneath the bridge. Day is done, day is the ever-present challenge. Wake or not, the painter Jess simply stays asleep. Paint hardens, even cracks or decades. Browns grow muddy, greens mute. Sky goes pale in the midst of an abstract field blue, deep blue squiggles. Don Quixote approaches. What is possible seen? Heard, a motive prosody, heart because it impacts one's breathing, gasp to grasp the truth of what is not even visible, cannot be heard, red-haired, settered, deaf to the world, lopes slowly, copes by smell, residual sight, my eyes shut. Dear Krishna, it's 6.11 a.m. upstairs, a faucet turns briefly. Lily has grown now, Alan's hair thins at last, Melissa's perfect smile still shines, but no sign of Lulu. Time erodes what's dear, what's near, is past too soon to grasp fully the consequence. Dawn threatens a new day constantly, sun as vicious as dusk, or rather simply uncaring. Birds disinterested in the infant's corpse. It's language that introduces emotion, or the other way round. My old street so narrow, two boys throwing a football would find my world unimaginable, and I'm sure theirs likewise will amaze them. How quaint that first home network seems already. Norma says of Barbara, she's there and then not, mimicking conscious more slowly now, so that others can see you feel the heat's lack, but not the wind. Wind up an old clock airplane, I realize is now tracking the traffic, the early commute First train, best train, still no hint of sun, but now all the trees, houses, visible in silhouette, the dog audible by its collar, paws over hardwood, then a sigh. Across the street, windows emerge, porches, no longer just outlines, details, a larger jet now, a few cars, then many, my penmanship more ornate today, no sign of the trembles. An instant ago, I sat in Elliot's kitchen, then taped words cut from the paper above the dog's white bowl. Good dog, the last I'd ever lived with I didn't know then. I dream you floating, not plummeting, from high off that bridge. Birds finally begin to twitter, color floods emerging day. The sun still behind the hills, face west, 
toward whichever future comes. Mockingbird mimics dog collar. Another bird's three-note peep. Discern now which jet is which. Pink streak the high sky. I rise. Eyes blink shaking. Sleep away. 757 angles in fog. Bay at the runway's rim, engines rearing, waiting, ready, poised, then flaring to race forward up over the salt ponds, half hidden in the mist, silhouette of the city piercing cloud. But the bridges are hidden, inner ear, particular trumpet displays, pressure, cottony wisps soon scatter, valleys revealed green and gold. I hold the fluted glass to cleanse the palate, mango ice cream of the sauce, hot and sweet, spicy smoked eggplant, rice absorbs the broth, breath, bread, bread ahead, too big for hats, hands likewise large, grasp the ball with ease. To please herself, she walks on her palms, then flips upright, smiling, sees more than we know, teases younger brother, mother, dad, bad, dogs, never. Stone said to contain its own sculpture thwarts choice. To voice vowels languidly moist, lips purse their part. There's an art to it, intuited before thought thinks. Paused at an intersection not visible from here, the blue of a perfect spring morning unimaginable above, above this gray crush of apartments. Who here owns the slightest yard? Young man alone in Chipotle, chewing thoughtfully his large burrito, not talking, taking it all in, eyes absorbing all. Could have been had this taqueria been there then, myself in 1964. What little I knew then but could learn by doing, earn just enough to eke by, barking for the cafe wa, dime for each new customer. I lack the huckster's flair, lone feather by a gravel road, all one needs by which to fabricate the tale, each to each, not beach exactly, but stones against the water, piled up to the dock beyond which or which mockingbird hops to confront a robin, squirrel rears up to eat some morsel in the clover, each page would blow wild but for the binding stitched deep into the notebook's spine. How many words have I left? Use them wisely, sparingly. Each could outlast me. To what purpose but this compulsive record forward from the age of a small mid-century lad sitting cross-legged on my bed scribbling anything to be free, anything to make sense. Peel cellophane from a new tea carton. No indication where it's grown. Argentina. No record. No sense of the map. Haywood called his first book Cartographers. Was there ever a second? A sense now, over half a century, intricate puzzle, grandmother reduced to ash, grandfather, no more silent than ever just for being dead. Sip today's first tea, the warmth is the half of it, my throat first craves, table narrows in the kitchen alcove, West Virginia A-frame cabin clock with a different bird song for every hour, sans kids. What have you to etch these words into time? Applause once we crossed the border. My 47th state, family myths, arc over generations. John Franklin Tansley could not have known telling any who would listen that, yes, the explorer, yes, his own grandfather, yes, but the grandson, Richard, goes back a century later, looks up, finds the marriage record, yes, John Franklin, yes, married Jane, 
but instead a fishmonger married a weaver's daughter. X marks the signature. How soon technology catches you out. These keys enact a surveillance that will only sink deeper over time. What you think about that from coma to, coma to commerce to con versus sub Jugation, the root marks languages route across form. Surname in the family now just four generations, but literacy not more than six. So what arrogance am I then enacting, weaving ink into paper, stains of a history already blanching in the light? Up above, I hear you stirring, rising, at least to sit up, then slowly, quietly coming downstairs to use the bathroom. Dawn just starts to be visible through the blinds soft glow, neither blue nor gray, sun not yet visible. They're distinct, sun and the dawn. One recurs while the other stretches. Fans swirl slowly high overhead, but the wind chime is still. Why repair rotting kitchen now? Why seek? Read every book if the flood won't quit. Even when you've left, desire, desire is the answer. Hunger never rests. Geese, each dawn, now for decades, circling late until day's form is found. All over again, I rise to write. Sun still hidden behind hills, hummingbird upon branch, appears so still, breathe deep to taste air. First bark, first bark. Squirrel's tail twitches, causing whole branch to shake. Trains whistle deep and steady. Three echoes distinct. Great shushing rush of traffic. White noise forms morning music outside window. Spider quick on his thread. It's all about scale. Bicycles break squeal. Long way down. Stands on her deck naked to inspect the day. Trumpet flower. Pod yellow. Almost purple tip. Phallic before it explodes, red, red, orange, bright yellow center. Notebooks, pages dwindle. One project all not complete. That's not its point. But to stretch even just a little, shape and dimension, time and dominion, days, echoes, ricochet uphill, canyon to canyon, every fold, marvelous instrument, my declining ear, here's what I cannot see, say, sheer ecstasy of breath, each one, no two alike, ever, audible in bell's head, sinus sounds, own teeth grinding until jaws, muscles, spasm, clench. Dear Los Angeles Dodgers, my bet noir not, you form the surrogate we so desperately need, enemy, enema. It all comes out in the wash. One road south of Dogtown, garden fence to ward off deer, plums, their skin tart, their flesh sweet and cool. I almost don't recognize the hummingbird still on the almond branch. Farms here feel vast. We missed a single turn. Bob speaks of how O becomes D, or vice versa. Steve talks happily of new son. David and I and ours eat around a front yard table just behind a small picket fence. The heat rare even here. You never see birds sleep. Hummingbirds, red crown, white chest. A view of the bay from the deck. Audible neighbors, not really visible. Someone's alarm reaches endless reiteration. Arise, arise. Your eyes must be clear. The sound of Bart different from day of my youth. Thin haze, but no fog. Light spreads over San Francisco clouds at first seems small until one speck of plain 
flies beneath. Then a second, absolutely crosswise, big truck sticker reads, Give war a chance. Look for the gun rack, boat sits still in bay. Who works there in silence only because I'm too far to hear? Notebook reaches limit, not unlike mind or heart. Whole family singing Beatles songs as we drive. First thought, not your own, let alone best. Phrases weave against lines. Water comes to a boil. Squirrels wrestle in the branches. One skitters across the slanted roof. Mount Tam, silent as ever, only seems unchanged. Human scale, clouds above have moved on, leaving new sky, sun muted, still amid trees. I close my eyes just to listen, laughing jay, distant train, feel instead hair, air over hair, back of my hand, its taste palpable in nostrils, eucalyptus tea, hummingbird responds to jay, jets echo heading east, sounds create, first sprinkler bottle on table, sense of my own body high in the Berkeley Hills. Thank you. I, I will sign books if people buy books. I would answer questions, or at least I would talk as though I were answering a question. A trick I have learned over the years. There's a hand. There's a hand back there in the corner of somebody who's stretching. It's it's five word lines, um, all the way across. Um, which is the start of universe because the last two sections that Louis Zakovsky wrote of his long poem A used five word lines. And so I'm making a conscious uh, link. And of course, they were those two uh, particular uh, uh, sections were published in Poetry Magazine themselves. So it's one of the reasons why Revelator ended up here. Oh, yes, way back. There's a light being down. I can't see you at all, but I know, I know, I know you're a guy. So. Uh, so there's a lot of artists that's, like, terrible to, like, be performed at you, you know, to be, like, stuck in the room and listening to. I mean, I'm going to say a lot of poetry, personally. But I think when I was reading, I'm reading, when I was listening to you read, I was thinking about, um, or I guess I wanted to hear you talk about, like, the relation of performance in the new sense versus the text. And I was thinking about how in some ways there seems to be more vitality in, uh, in, in, your, in your work even as performance as opposed to, as audio, as opposed to written on the page. And I was wondering um, maybe your own relationship to performance because of that. Well, I, I, I think I approach the text on the page not unlike, in fact, the older I get, the more I think this is the case, not unlike um, uh, a jazz musician might approach a score, and particularly if it's a score in uh, a form other than traditional musical notation. I, you know, I remember once upon a time getting to play in a Gaga Ku uh, group that Michael McClure put together that included myself and Philip Whalen and... Uh, um, a composer by the name of Chris Gaynor. And uh, we played a Navajo rug um, because that was the object that we could literally put between us and everyone was responsible for their own interpretations. 
I think that kind of approach feels to me um, very doable and viable. I think the idea of trying to replicate the same exact reading each time out um, is um, horrific in some respect. Um, and it, it's precisely the thing that I find most challenging and difficult um, about certain forms or certain approaches to so-called classical music uh, in those terms or to certain kinds of poetry. But, you know, it changes over the years, but not only my readings, but everybody's. Uh, I'm old enough to remember a period when Robert Duncan uh, literally counted to three between each line. And if I did that today, we would be going on for another hour. Um, plus, everybody here would have actually gone to sleep. Um, so, you know, there, there are those kinds of things to sit and, and deal with. I know that Robert Creeley, when he was a young man, looked to William Carlos Williams and, and Louis Zakowski for a lot of information about how to read and how the line is shaped and all of that. And he was quite, I think, taken back to discover that um, Williams reading aloud made no um, accommodation for line breaks whatsoever. Zakowski broke or paused at the end of every second line quite consistently throughout his career. Um, and that, you know, when you read him aloud, it creates a different kind of prosody than the one you might hear in your head looking at it on the page. Uh, if you look at Charles Olson's poems, which always start out with long lines and then proceed to get shorter and shorter and shorter, he did pay attention to his line breaks, and his poems tend to get faster and faster and faster uh, as he goes on towards the end of each work. I don't know if that answers it, but again, I, as I promised, I, I talked around it. So, right. Well, I, I, this is the first part of this is not a question, but I was struck too by how much your poems are involved with sound and rhythm, and I know a little bit about how you compose. That you know, you, you and must change. That you you know write a sentence here and a sentence there, and then you combine them later, and they. The, the way that they appear in the book may not be the order in which they were actually composed. So well, I, I mean, that's true with 2197, but I'd say virtually all of the alphabet is in exactly, I mean, there's like 1% to 2% revision, um, you know, and and that's been my work for the last 25 years. So, and, no, not, well, the, unless it's specifically part of the process. Um, and, you know, I... Actually, hand me my hand me that back. Um, unless it, there are certain works that are a different part of the uh, of the process, and then there are other works that are are not. But I would say that I have written ninety percent of the work I've written in the last thirty years with this pen, not with pens like this, with this pen, um, which I bought at the stationery store next to Zabar's back in like nineteen eighty one after giving a talk at St. Mark's the day before that I felt like I hadn't screwed up on uh, and so therefore I deserved a reward. So I got a nice little pen that actually cost what in 1981 seemed like a fortune. It cost like 30 bucks, 40 bucks, something like that. Uh, and it probably cost 150 now. Um, but um, I've used that pen pretty constantly and in the past couple of years since I've 
talked more and more about that phenomenon, people have started sending me really nice pens in the mail. Uh, I've gotten, uh, I've been uh, working, one of the other sections I'm working on right now is called Paradise Lost, parrot, the bird, eyes, the verb, lust, something we all know, um, which is a work I've actually been thinking about since 1973. I can take a long time to get started on a work. Um, and there's some sections of the alphabet that were like that as well. It took 10, 15 years or more to actually get started on them. But once I sort of had the process down, um, it seems to really dictate itself. So I'm using this German fountain pen uh, for this uh, text, Paradise Lost. Um, and I, another work I just um, finished called Caledonia, I finished using a uh, ballpoint pen that another reader sent me. It's got my name engraved on it. It comes in a nice little box that happens to have the very last phrase of the alphabet engraved on it. Um, so I'm starting to get art pens, um, which are, it's a little bit like playing with notebooks. You know, I go into a, a bookstore and I sit down and I try and imagine what, what work is contained in that notebook and whether or not I should pick it up or buy it. The uh, Northern Soul comes about um, because I was on my way to uh, Liverpool. I, I had a free day in Manchester, and so I decided I should go to Liverpool and check out the Cavern Club. Um, and uh, there's actually a great museum in Liverpool as well. Um, and um, I realized about halfway to the train station I'd forgotten my notebook, which, you know, I might as well forget my trousers. Uh, so I felt like I could turn around and walk back, but I was already starting to have that phenomena you get when you travel. Of, you know, you, there are a limited number of steps you can take each day, and I didn't think I wanted to add that mile then. So I went into a Waterstones, which is like a Borders or a Barnes & Noble, um, on uh, Deansgate in uh, Manchester, and I was so, I, you know, to look at notebooks, but of course I had to look at the poetry section too, and what should I see but the, the Age of Huts um, there in Manchester, UK, and that sort of left me in such a positive mood that I went and bought a, a little moleskin and uh, immediately started writing, uh, Boyd, um, you know, by that... Uh, event alone. But one of the sections of the alphabet, the one that Ray and I wrote as a collaboration, involved uh, in, this is, gives you an idea how long ago, we weren't doing emails, we were sending letters back and forth in the mail, and I was typing my paragraphs on that on a typewriter. It's almost the only section of the alphabet where I used a typewriter for original composition. Uh, likewise, one of the sections of what I'm working on now um, is a piece called Feral Machines, where I'm using telephones and PDAs. And, I, you know, I go on eBay and look for old, out-of-date, obsolete PDAs that might be good to write with. Um, and I'm collecting sort of found language there and lumping them together later. And so that's an instance where I'm doing exactly what you're saying, Ray, but then a lot of other times, like with uh, Revelator, I just literally sit down and, and uh, started writing and went straight through. So it, it really depends on the specific piece. And like the alphabet, where the idea was to push my work into as many different directions as possible, universe has something of the same condition to it. I don't want to repeat myself. 
which when you have something that's got 360 potential sections really is a challenge. Because the older you get, you'd be surprised how much you want to go back and rewrite your favorite poems over and over. Smart. Um, it's actually what you were saying at the end there, leads into a question that I'm asking, wanted to ask. And it's got several parts to this. <laughs> Um, I'm interested, uh, I've always been interested in the sort of uh, maximal attempt of your poems. That is, as you just said a moment ago, they go in as many directions as you want. Um, and I sort of distinguish that from the long poem, because while you write long poems, there are some long poems that don't have that same kind of maximal effect. Um, and I'm wondering whether, when that urge for you started, in other words, when you first started thinking of your work that way, or you had these larger conceptions of what you were doing, um, and what is at stake for you when you're really, you know, as you say, you're another project of this kind where the goal is really a kind of, you know, again, maximalism, which is a term from fiction, but nonetheless, I think, sort of applies here. And then the last part of the question is, thinking about that in relationship to your work, what I noticed on your blog for many, many years was how often you were reading and praising, interestingly enough, poets who were very minimalist. Right, and I, and I just wrote a, a piece on the importance of reading haiku. Um, very recently there, which, needless to say, is about to get me a flood of haiku books. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, I mean, just for instance, you and Ray, who have been friends for a long, long time, it's only mm -hmm. a little bit of an exaggeration to say that no one writes longer poems than you, and very people write shorter poems than she does, and yet there's a sort of, you know, close trade-off in the way that you think. Right. Well, I do think that attention is all, is a really important part of... of the scale question on, on both ends of the spectrum, and it's one that gets lost in the middle. Um, I think one of the advantages of haiku, uh, one of the reasons why it's good for, it, it, it's possible for a person to become a good haiku poet before they could be good at any other kind of poetry, is because you really are, it's like a, a be there or be square kind of challenge. There is no room to hide. You have like, you know, X amount of space. And nowadays, now that at least half of the haiku poets in America are writing one-line poems, not three-line poems, um, you know, that's even more visibly the case than it was 10, 15 years ago in, in those terms. And I really do think that privileges the ability to pay attention. On the scale on which I work, I think the exact same thing tends to apply because the, if I were to write a long work that got very fuzzy and went back and forth into historical shenanigans and I was writing my Van Buren, um, you know, economic cantos or whatever, um, you know, I think the tendency to anesthetize the reader um, and to send them away once and for all um, would uh, would be really high in that kind of circumstance. So I, I think it, but I think it's a, a scale question, but I think it's like a spectrum question. At either end of the spectrum, that constant need to pay attention becomes super important, and in the middle, it tends very often to get. Actually, the best poems in the middle have it too, but it's really hard. In fact, one of the one of the most challenging sections of the alphabet for me was Vogue which is the V section, it's the only acronym uh, of all my titles, uh, and a TV acronym that the 19, well, it mean, today it means voiceover guy. Uh, it's the person who speaks off stage and says, here's Conan or whatever. But in the 1950s, it was called Voice of God. 
uh, which tells you about the secularization of TV culture over that, over that period of time. But the acronym hasn't changed. Uh, it's still, if you look at it on, uh, on screenplays or scripts for TV shows, it's still VOD. Um, but uh, that was an attempt to write um, uh, a section of the alphabet that was, quote, a book of ordinary poems, unquote. And that, for me, was just about the most challenging section of the entire work to do, uh, precisely because I had to start thinking about those, those shorter middle distances, one page, half a page, three pages. And that, that for me, was really... I, I can't say it was hell, but that was probably one of the two or three sections that took the longest for me to actually work through and write. And it was precisely because um, in those middle forms, the tendency to move away from that uh, obsessiveness about the concreteness of the particular um, seems to uh, be bred into the form in a funny way. I mean, I, I think I tend to be, and quite consciously at this point in my life, I don't think so much so when I was younger, um, an, an advocate for the invisible. I really, I mean, the reason I write poetry rather than fiction is because I don't want to talk about the homicide that's going on in the middle of the room. I want to talk about the dust bunnies underneath the table. And uh, because they're what's not seen. They're, they, so much of the world is not seen, not acknowledged. And I grew up in a family where, for reasons of, of history and religion and, and um, family dynamics, I you know, had a grandfather whose, whose uh, first demand of his grandchildren was that we be invisible. So I have a lot of solidarity with dust bunnies um, and with uh, the gunk underneath my fingernails and the stuff that sort of forms a filter on the windowsill. And I really do want to call attention to that as much over and over as I humanly can because I think of it as being unbelievably important to our lives and our souls. But the only way to get to it is through poetry. I can't write a novel about dust bunnies. Nobody's ever successfully done it, and I don't think I could either. Yes? Birds are a wonderful way to walk through nature. You can walk on the same trail every single day and it will always be a different walk if you're paying attention to birds. Um, and that's quite literally my... That, that's why birds are so important. They also create an enormous uh, backdrop of information about the ecology of any given region. And, um, you know, plus they're fun, you know. I called my first book Crow uh, precisely because um, I was thinking of certain Native American rituals of identifying your, you know, uh, animal object or your animal totem. And um, I had been thinking precisely, and if you read the book, there's uh, a constant, there is a confusion between magpies and crows in the book. That's part of it. Um, but the crow seemed like a, a, a really good object. Of course, Ted Hughes released a book with the same title on the same week that came out. Uh, which, um, uh, for